0: You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Real good. They knew of the drill at this point. Really glad you're here on this third Sunday of Advent. You know, when I get up here and you've probably heard preachers before preachers are prone to hyperbole they're prone to exaggerate things a bit so to hype things up usually like you might say this next series it's just going to be revolutionary and then you go through it and you're like that was not revolutionary that was that was pretty pedestrian at best But as I use this word today, revolutionary, and speak about the passage we're looking at today as being revolutionary, I know you may gloss over that, you may think I'm kind of using another sermon buzzword if you've heard before, but in this situation, this passage is definitively revolutionary in the best sense of this word. I don't know if you know this, but in British-occupied India, this passage today was banned from being read in churches because of what it incited. The same thing happened in the nineteen eighties among the poor in Guatemala and Argentina because when they read these words they were inspiring the poor towards the defiance of the powers of empire that had held them down. And so they too in these nations banned this passage we're reading today from being read in their gatherings you might think, what are we speaking of here? Is this some sort of military document that inspires some sort of... No, this is a 2,000-year-old prayer from a passionate cry of a poor, unmarried, pregnant mother who is living at this point in absolute obscurity. In this case, the words we're reading, are the words of a revolutionary by the name of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And maybe that sounds strange to you, especially when... Mary is typically portrayed in this culture looking something kind of like this, always very soft and su- serene and suspiciously white, suspiciously, overwhelmingly white, like, like need to get out in the sunlight white. And so it's hard to imagine someone being so meek and angelic and kind of wispy and ethereal being someone who speaks out such a revolutionary prayer. But the Mary of Scriptures, the Mary of Scriptures, I hope you know, was a brown-skinned, poor Galilean teenager, right? From the middle of nowhere. And so from a worldly perspective, she had nothing whatsoever that would give her the right to speak to power, at least from what we understood. But nonetheless, this moment arrives to her and arrives here today for us in what this prayer is called the Magnificat. Um, the backstory to this prayer that we're looking at today is she is going to meet her cousin by the name of Elizabeth, who is also pregnant as well. Let's look together in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill His promises to her. Now, we can go through a thousand Christmases and read these passages over and over again, and the familiarity can be kind of a tyranny against us actually grasping the full humanity of this. I want you to imagine a pregnant, unwed teenage mother. It goes without saying that Mary especially in that time, would have been living as a social outcast in her situation. If the world around her found out what was happening, there could be hell to pay. And so she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who was the wife of a priest, and there was no guarantee at this point that she would be welcome. But Mary, she lived into this tension between living into the promise of God, but also recognizing honestly the judgment of men, but the Holy Spirit immediately makes Elizabeth aware that something bigger is happening. Beneath, beneath the social awareness of, of what's taking place, the Holy Spirit makes it clear this is something different. The first two people we see in the New Testament here that are filled with the Holy Spirit, the first two are Elizabeth and her unborn child. A woman and her unborn child are the first two filled with the Holy Spirit. That unborn child, by the way, being John the Baptist. And I would imagine for those first days, if you can put yourself in the shoes somehow of an unwed teenage mother in the middle of nowhere, in obscurity, probably living in poverty, that must have felt so isolating as a woman. Wanting someone that you could trust this news to, but knowing and being afraid that Many would condemn her and cast her out. While she would know, some people would just think she's crazy, saying that this is this child of God. Is this all just a crazy dream? I imagine, step by step, those weary steps up to her her, her uncle, her cousin Zachariah's house, Elizabeth's home, were probably very anxious and overwhelming. And it probably was an incredible relief as a woman to come and know that as I share this earth-shattering news that you're not going to reject me, that you're actually welcoming me by the Holy Spirit. And these first words that Elizabeth speaks to her speak this so clearly. It says, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Elizabeth not only recognizes Jesus here, she recognizes that Mary is walking in radical, radical obedience knowing what could have been ahead of her, but yet stepping into this moment with the Holy Spirit. And as this happens, this is the backstory. This is when things begin to stir within Mary, this joy, this this feeling of overwhelming, overcasting joy that comes out. And she breaks out into what can only really be described as a protest song. Now, when we read these words we're going to see today, I hope you don't hear Caleb, because I don't think they play this on Caleb, to be really honest with you. This is less Lord, I lift your name on high and more like we shall overcome. More like a change is going to come. It's more like the times they are a change. Mary is worshiping in worshipful response to this holy moment, and out of this overwhelming worship comes a protest song about what her unborn child would bring. Listen to these words here on the screen. It says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, so far, pretty tame. Nothing really controversial here. You might hear that part on Caleb, but this is when it starts to get a little… Here we go. Let's look. It says, he has performed mighty deeds from his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the hungry. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away in Hopefully you see why these words have been banned in so many empires and among powers who knew that if this is what Jesus is bringing, then maybe my days are numbered. If this is the revolution, and I use that word in its literal sense, the revolution that Jesus ushers into this world, then maybe I should begin to be a little bit nervous about what is ahead. This is not a Savior born into the world that's just an inspirational teacher to help make our modern world a little bit better, to get His followers to have a secure life in the sweet by and by. Mary is speaking prophetic words that promise that this Baby in her womb is not going to leave any nation, including ours, unchallenged and unchanged. This is a gospel that I hope you know is not just about saving souls, it's about subverting empires, it's about turning the world as we know it upside down. This is a promise that those who climb to their power on the back of the powers, those who rule with violence and coercion and, and with explo- exploitation on the weak and the wounded, well, their days, according to Mary, are, are numbered in Christ. And this is the most astounding thing of all as I look at this. It says that, that, that what threatens to topple these thrones In a normal world is going to be tanks rolling in or armies of empires, people coming on the big white horse. But no, what is threatening these people in power is this poor Galilean baby in a manger that's laying among animals. That's what threatens power as we know it. Power in the kingdom of Jesus does not look like the weapons of war. I want to say that again because in this day and age it's important. Hear me. Power in the kingdom of Jesus, doesn't look like the weapons of war. Amen? You hear with me? Power in the kingdom of Jesus does not rest on the ballot box, does not rest on the Oval Office, right? Power is paradoxical under the reign of Jesus. The way up is actually down, and the way down is actually up. And this is a truth that as Jesus enters into his ministry and begins to teach, a lot of people have a real hard time grasping, and we do too. Even his disciples struggle to grasp this upside-down kingdom. We see this in Matthew chapter 20. There is this scene between two of his disciples that makes this upside-down kingdom abundantly clear. Here's what it says here in Matthew 20. Then the, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant, that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, that sounds innocent enough, but in the first century, this was a backroom power play. This was basically like them saying, ironically, with getting their mom to help, (sighs) dorks, that's what they do getting their mom to help to come up and say, "Hey, when you come into power, can you get one of my sons to be the secretary of state and can you get one of them to be the vice president?" This wasn't simply a request that they have proximity to Jesus. This was a request that they share power with Jesus. Now, after clarifying their intentions here, this private conversation as it always does becomes public and things get heated, the disciples start to figure out what's happening. It says, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why? Because power in this world, by definition, is power in comparison with everybody else. Because if they sit at the right hand and they sit at the left hand, guess where we don't sit in those seats either. And so the disciples begin to get upset about this too. You measure your power not simply by what you can do but why, but why they can't do it, making sure that in power they do not share that same amount of power and that upends the expectations when Jesus speaks these words. He continues, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority Over them. That phrase Lord it over in the Greek is one word, katakareo, and it's a word that doesn't simply mean to have power. It means to have power over. It means that you stand on top of people to have power. This is domineering power. It's a power that will do anything and say anything whatsoever to maintain its position and hold over others. And sadly, as we know, a lot of American Christians think this is the kind of power we're supposed to grasp onto, right? A lot of American Christians believe that the, this domineering, coercive, violence-at-any-cost kind of power is the kind of power we have to hold to in order to get things done. And so we've too often decided that the man on the throne, or if it's The man in the pulpit, or if it's the man in the White House, or if it's the man in Congress, if they're domineering on our behalf, then it must be okay because they're getting our stuff done, right? They're getting our things going because God is ultimately on our side. So domineering power on our side is perfectly fine as long as we're getting things accomplished. But Jesus emphatically and clearly in this moment speaks to the seduction of that power with these four simple words that he says right after this. I want you to hear it. It's not just to his disciples. It's to you. It is to me. He says, not so with you. Who is you? You is anyone who calls Jesus Lord, anyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus. Instead, we are given by Jesus, a different vision of what power actually is. It continues, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Power in the kingdom of God is upside down, and nowhere is this clearer than when we fix our eyes. The cross at the heart of the gospel that you and I gather around every week when we share communion, when we sing, when we look to the scriptures together. This gospel is a power seen in a God who lays down his power for the sake of the powers. Philippians 2 makes this clear in this song, one of the first songs we see in scripture, one of the earliest hymns of the church says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. One of the great faults that we as Christians in this culture in evangelicalism we've had is that we see the cross as the means of our salvation, and it is, but it's not the model for how we actually live our lives. We see the cross as this mechanism for how we attain heaven, but not the actual shape of how we are to encounter the world around us. Someone I know knew this tension well, one of my heroes, was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You can see a picture of him on the screen. In the 1930s, the German church and began to align themselves with the Nazi party because they began to see that this is where power was headed. And if we wanted to maintain our hold over the nation, if we wanted to maintain our cultural power within, well, we have to hold on to what's happening within this government. And so they began to allow the Nazi Party to defend them and to maintain their values in any way possible. You can see a picture here on the screen of a church that was transformed to be a Nazi Party altar. The rise of Hitler in some cases was called the Pentecost. Those who resisted the nationalistic church at that time, they were labeled as politicized pastors. Prayers for peace were condemned as actually being unpatriotic. Bonhoeffer himself would eventually lose his life in a concentration camp because he continued to resist this power in the name of Jesus. But before this, about a decade before, on this third Sunday of Advent, this very Sunday we celebrate this morning in 1933, he was preaching in London where he had been sent to pastor a community of refugee Germans who were living there. I love that thought that Bonhoeffer, who had resisted in such a clear and emphatic way in following the cross-shaped way of Jesus, chose in this moment to preach from the very passage you and I hear today. And this is part of his sermon. This is such a moving, moving witness to what he was living out wholeheartedly. He says, for those who are great and powerful in this world, there are two places where their courage fails them which terrify them to the very depths of their souls and which they dearly avoid. These are the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. No one who holds power dares come near the manger. King Herod also did not dare. For here the thrones begin to sway. The powerful fall down and those who are high are brought low because God is here with This is why Mary's cry that we speak of today, this young, poor, unwed teenage mother carrying with her the hope of the world. The one she held in her womb that we celebrate today is toppling thrones, is scattering the proud, is disarming the powers and principalities of the world once and for all. And for a number of us, we do need a gospel that's big enough for the broken world that we inhabit, right? We need a gospel beyond just what happens in our souls, one that looks at the injustice and the brokenness around us and says, your days are numbered. And we may not see that today, but we know that there is a day coming when the one who is in the womb of Mary says, I am making all things new once and for all. This is a gospel that Some of us who are more revolutionary and activist-minded love to celebrate this time of year, this this revolutionary protest of Mary. But at the same time, sometimes it's our thrones that need toppling. Sometimes it's our power we have to reckon Sometimes what stands on the other side of the toppled thrones isn't condemnation. There is a manger that we are called to rest in. There is a cross that we are called to take up. What we see here today in the scriptures in this gospel is that the God of the universe entered into our story, into our weakness, into our messiness, into our pain, all to restore you and I back to God. So if you are looking for this king today in the halls of power, if you are looking to this king today to be nothing more than an addition to make your life a little bit better, you won't find him. But will you if not find him? It? Is on your knees, among the lowly, among the broken and weary. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is this powerful, helpless child in a manger. And what a strange but revolutionary, truly revolutionary thing you and I get to testify to today as we gather and sing that he is with us among our stories and our pain and brokenness. And this is how we get to respond to it. Lord, thank you to Thank you, Lord, that this is not a gathering of people who had to check their personalities and their problems at the door. Thank you, Jesus, that the gospel meets us where we are and as we are. And what I ask for this morning as we come to the scriptures and Mary's revolutionary, powerful words of prayer and protest, may you stir within us the same ache and longing for the world to be made. Whether that be the world within us, problems, fears, failures, questions that we wrestle with on a daily basis, or whether we look out today and see the fruit of brokenness, violence, and war, we're just longing for you to make all things new. Whatever that may be, we join with the song of Mary today, lifting our voice, lifting our hands, lifting our very stories to you to find redemption and wholeness in Christ. Would you meet us here today in the name of Jesus? We celebrate every week these elements of communion. Some on the table back there, there's some up here on this table. We do this every week, this tangible reminder of the body of Christ broken for us the blood of Christ shed for our sins, the reconciling power of the cross in and for us, remembering that we are united with God through him and even just as beautiful united to one another by his power. So we encourage you this morning to respond in worship, respond in honesty, respond where you are as you are, and cry out with the same ache that Mary cried today To be worship As you finish receiving the elements, I'd like to invite you to stand as we sing one final song today.